Father, I just thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness for everyone here. Lord God, I pray you bless them. I pray you speak to them. I pray you speak to us. I pray you bring about um, change within our lives. Father, we hear things, and what we hear shapes us. Help us to hear what it is you have to say for us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're doing this series, Artifacts. We're looking at eight different artifacts that were made um, from when the children of Israel left Egypt. And these artifacts all meant something to them artistically speaking, but also prophetically speaking. And each week we've looked at a different one. Now, we've covered three artifacts. And today, the one we're looking at is we are looking at the tabernacle, which is like this giant tent. And so to do that, we're looking at Exodus 26 and... Um, there are a ton of details, so I'm going to try and speed read through this because there's a few bits that are important, a few bits that aren't crazily important. <coughs> Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen, blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. So we've had these couple of moments where we've said like... Um, a couple of the imagery is, is symbolic and stretching back to Eden. Um, so with the tabernacle, this tent, um, you have a number of things going on. And straight off the bat, it's talking about the different colours. The colours are all kind of symbolic and, and colour-coded for a reason, and we'll kind of tap into a couple of those things later on. But ultimately, straight on the outside, it's got these um, cherubim kind of sewn into it. So the idea is this reminder of these angels. Um, it's not because they were like these... Um, spaced out people like all right angels all around us woo past the reefer no they weren't those kind of people what they're saying is they're drawing back to eden they're they're a constant visual reminder of the kind of separation between man and god the holiness issue that he is now separate from us because before they would meet with him in the call of the evening adam and eve there's a holiness issue now so there's a separation so god is now what you would call holy um, it's not that he he wasn't who he was before he is still who he is but they are not who they are there's a separation issue. So around the outside of this thing, they're reminding them of the story of Eden and that there was a, an angel guarding them away from their home, that they couldn't be back at the place where they had peace, where they had rest, and there's a separation. So this around the edge of his house is a constant reminder of the holiness issue, the separation issue, which is a reminder of the divide between them and that God plans for a way back for them, for things to be how they were. So um, then it goes on to talk about the length. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain shall be 4 cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and another five couple, um, curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outmost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outmost curtain in the second set. 50 loops shall make you shall make on one curtain. 50 loops you shall make on the edge of um, the curtain. That is the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of gold, um, couple the curtains one to another with clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. So the idea is you're joining all this together and it's this one big unit. You shall make the curtains of goat's hair for the tent over the tabernacle. 11 curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain should be 30 cubits and the breadth of each 4 cubits. The 11 curtains should be the same size. You should couple... Five curtains by themselves, six curtains by themselves, six curtains you shall double over at the front of the tent. You should make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain, that is the outermost in one set, the 50 loops on the edge, which is the outermost in the second set. So um, you have this massive curtain being made, and it's being made of like this goat's hair, this kind of goat skin. Um, 
and so straight away for this um, area um, you have sacrifice involved so for this area to be made it kind of serves as kind of like a barrier and as a protective nature so later on when you see like a lot of the priestly code what they would do is they'd do very sacrifice before they'd go in a priest would only go in once a year into like the holy of holies and when he'd go in there he'd go there with rope tied around his ankle um, not because he wanted an ankle bracelet but because um, going in there if he hadn't got things completely right with God and hadn't disguised himself and like they did this mist this scented aroma they do around them and that wasn't because it was like some people kind of see it as an offering but actually they were trying to hide themselves they were trying to go in and do their duty but they were trying to stay hidden so it's kind of like adam so it's like that subliminal thing going on from the beginning which is like uh, we know the place we're in we know that we can't come before god in the way we did before we know that if we do that it would lead us to death it would kill us because we're not in that place so they're trying to do this mist the scented mist to try and, they know that God could see them. It wasn't like they, they were like, uh, like they, could, they knew that he couldn't see them, uh, he could see them. But they were doing it kind of out of respect and an awe, realizing that they needed to do something about this situation. There was nothing they could do. So the best thing they thought they could do was this kind of, uh, this layer between them. So straight away, even with the actual structure of the building itself, it's kind of coated in this way, which is all about the sacrifice. Which, once again, is pointing straight back to Eden at the point that they, they realized they were naked in their sin and God covers them in these skins. So straight away, the, the very tabernacle, the very fabrics it's made out of is relating to that story and that whole kind of message and kind of symbolism. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put clasps into loopholes and, and couple the tent together and it will be a single hole. And the parts that remain of the curtain of the tent, half the curtains that remain shall hang over the back of the tabernacle and the extra that remains in length of the curtains, the, cu the cupid on one side and the cupid on the other side shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned um, ram skins and a covering of goat skins on tops. So once again, relating to the sacrifice and the separation and the holiness issue. So you shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of Achaia wood. Achaia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of the frame, and a cubit and a half shall be the breadth of the frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for a fitting together. So you shall do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames. One of the things we talked about in the first week was we talked about the different metals. So closer you got to the Holy of Holies, the metals changed. So in the outer area you have bronze and then it transitions into silver and then it transitions into gold when it gets to the, the, the Holy of Holies. So there's this constant kind of visual reminder of ish is getting more and more real as you get closer and closer to this. So at this point we're talking about um, silver. For the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, 20 frames and 40 bases of silver carries on. Um, you should make bars of acacia wood. It carries on the same kind of measurements, um, the same kind of distinguishing. And then you see in verse 29, you shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings for gold holders for the bars and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan um, for it that you were shown on the mountain. So straight away, it's now got to the real stage. So it's kind of like gold. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on the four pillars of um, 
Achaia um, overlaid with gold and hooks of gold on the four bases of silver and you shall hang them with a veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. So like you have these kind of different um, symbols. So you have the different kind of like um, materials. So when we talk about bronze within their context and their culture, that was kind of like seen as like a, a judgment kind of area. So as you get to the first kind of area, um, bronze was and brass are associated within their context. You can see that in like the book of Numbers and Revelation and also in um, Exodus itself. And so for them, the first layer is, is judgment. So before you get to God, you get to this place of judgment, which is like the brass and the bronze, which is why they've chosen those kind of um, metals. The second area you get to is silver. Now, silver is kind of um, continually talked about throughout, consistently throughout scripture of redemption. You have it in Exodus 36, 24, Exodus 30, 15. Also like Hosea, um, I think, no, forget that. I don't want to go there. Um, but yeah, so silver is kind of like seen as this symbolic thing for like redemption. And then the final area, which where you get straight into the kind of Holy of Holies area, this is all kind of gold. And gold is always about deity. So it's, as they get to that point, it's kind of like he, he's here. There's this kind of like awareness that we've, we've come to this point where we've embraced judgment. We've transitioned to the redemption that he's paid for us. And now we can kind of um, connect with him. So that's so even in the artistry of the metals chosen, symbolically, it reaffirms the same message, the same ideology that they all share, that they all believe. And then also we've just read here about the different colors. Um, so you should make a veil of blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. So this is like repeated again and again throughout the kind of um, description here of like um, the tabernacle and how it's, designed to look so straight away when you start with um scarlet um you start with kind of like um the image of kind of like blood sacrifice um purple for them was like royalty still is today you see a lot of like um kings queens queens drag queens even no i'm joking um wearing purple and blue um is a is a is a color they associated kind of like men mentally speaking with like um heaven so as you get closer, not only do the metals change, um, not only do the, uh, the fabrics kind of change, you get, but you also get kind of a change in the colours. And all of this is so that through the tabernacle, you have this artistic, prophetic kind of journey at the same time. So it's kind of like an experience thing. So like for today's world, we have this with like schools now where we tend not to, with younger children, just dump them in like uh, rooms that are completely colorless, lacking any substance. Now intentionally rooms are designed to take children on a particular journey with the physical things that they play with, the things that they see, the things they touch, the textures. So you get sometimes now, like with my wonderful Eden, we have like a couple of toys for her, which have all these different textures on them, which is kind of like meant to be teaching them about different things. So we do that in today's world, but we also do that in retail. If you look at Apple and the way they lay out their stores, like nothing is left to chance. Um, and the same with Ikea, which is just a maze, which is to make you buy loads of stuff you never knew you wanted and you want to get out of there and you see more stuff. It's intentionally a maze. It's intentionally impossible to get out of until you've picked up the, mass the maximum amount of items and then a secret passage opens back out of Narnia and you can go and pay for your goods. And all of this stuff is intentional. And the same is with this tabernacle. It's taking you on that journey of judgment, redemption, and then encountering deity. And it's 
letting us know of the blood sacrifice of God's kingship and that he is here but he is also there. So it's like this heavenly reminder going on at the same time. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. So there's these layers of holiness. So like we've said, with the metals changing, everything changes to this point. So it's a, it's a really kind of difficult concept. And the reason it's a really difficult concept is because the way that this story and this narrative is, is set out is really kind of confusing. So, like, I remember years ago when I was a kid and Eternal were, like, that girl band that everyone was like, jeez. And I remember, like, Louise Nerding was pitched as the girl next door. And I don't know why they always pitch like that. They always have a certain female celebrity that is said, like, this, this is the girl next door. I don't know anyone who's had the girl next door that's looked like... If anyone does know anyone that has had a neighbour that's looked like Louise Nerding or they said it about Britney Spears as well, it's like, great, like... I don't know anyone who's ever had a neighbor that's looked like that. It's a bit weird, but they pitch it as the girl next door. And so the idea behind this whole thing with Israel is a bit like the girl next door. But it's really confusing. And in the same way, the idea of Louise Nerding being the girl next door, it makes her kind of come across accessible, but she's not accessible. It's kind of like that with, with, with God. Um, because what happens is um, he sets them free um, they enter into this like kind of marital kind of relationship at Mount um, Sinai where they say, you'll be our God. And he says, you'll be my people. And then he gives them this identity, this way of living in the law. Then he talks about the artistry of the priesthood. And it is a part of this organization, which is kind of like operates as the council that looks after all the people within society, helps them stay in a moral position. That means everyone gets to live in the best possible environment they can live in. And then they place God right at the center of their um, society. And the tabernacle is there. And it's like, it's a, it's, a re- it's like a reversal of everything. So, for example, Rob Bell wrote this book called The Zimzum of Love. And Zimzum is this kind of Hebrew word that means that you create space for something new. So when he talks about it, he talks about it in, in a marital kind of way. So it's a relationships book. And he's saying when you invite someone into your life, you have to create room for that person. They can't just fit there because you've got your life how you've got your life. If you don't withdraw some stuff and then make rain, make space for them, it doesn't work. So he's talked about creating space in this kind of relationship. And the idea that he took, took that from was that in the beginning, in the kind of Hebrew tradition, um, some rabbis and some teachers have spoke about God withdrew himself and created space for creation. And that he created space for us. And then what we have here is kind of like the, although he didn't talk about this as I was reading this, it made me think about it. What we have here is kind of like the opposite. So he saved this people and these people are like so grateful for it. What they do is they kind of withdraw and they create space for him at the center of their camp and they build this whole priesthood, this whole nature and they make room for him to be at the center. Now at different points throughout their history, just like in a marriage, there are moments when you really respect the boundaries and the space that you create for that person and you honor them, but there are some times when you don't. And there are times in their tradition where, I think it's in Ezekiel, they start to build really closely to the temple and they start to expand around it. And it's like this huge disrespect. It's like they're squeezing him out. Like the building, they can't move, but they can get right up close. And there were laws that they had to keep a distance between. And you know what? Sometimes it's like that in marriage. Sometimes it's like that in life where you stop losing that reverence 
for the person you've created space for and you start to kind of squeeze them out and you start to do damage in that way. And it's the same with God and with Israel. They've, at this early stage in the relationship, this wonderful thing happens where they create this space for him on his terms where they enter into this covenant of what they will do, what they will keep, and they create this, this space, this priesthood. And the idea is that God is like, well, they are actually the girl next door. But God comes into this space to live among his people, that he's going to be there with them. And so throughout the whole of this kind of journey that the people of Israel go on is, is really about creating space for God in their lives. And actually that's something that we have to do because sometimes people come to this point of wanting to believe in God because it can kind of like bring this kind of light feeling as you get this release, this forgiveness of your sins. You get um, God coming, being with us. You get Holy Spirit filling us, empowerment. And some guys in the New Testament wanted that for the sake of the power that that can bring and the, the change that can bring to your own life and for your own benefits. But actually a lot of time it's about creating space. And actually one of the things we fail to do often in our Christian walk is create space for God. Um, we just live a life how we want to live it. We come and engage with him a little bit on a Sunday, um, which is great, and it's a little bit of room for him, but actually those aren't the terms he set out here in this book. The terms were that they were all encamped around him, that everything was about him being the centerpiece, and that he wished to change the whole way in which they governed and lived their lives. And actually that hasn't changed. He still wants to be the centerpiece of your life. He still wants to be the centerpiece of my life. And he wants to change how you live it and how you treat one another. And he wants you to create room for him. So one of the things that I did recently in this, the book that I've um, written, The Karmashima Drama, is exactly that. It's about hearing him. It's about creating space in the beginning of the day. It's about taking the conversation that you experienced at the beginning of the day, taking it throughout the whole of the day, having the conversation at the end of the day, reflecting on it, and looking to how we engage in hearing him and how living for him and how sharing love can change and transform society. They heard this law, they heard this instruction, and they set about building it, and they created this space for him to be at the centerpiece. If we don't do that within our lives, society fails to get the benefit of what church is supposed to be. So Dave Cameron talked about big society. The idea behind the Karmashima drama, the idea behind the tabernacle, is the biggest society that brings maximum change and impact because we no longer kind of live for ourselves as the centerpiece, but we live for him to be the centerpiece. And until that happens, we fail to live out the, the true Christian life. So the way this thing was kind of laid out was you had like the outer court, you had the holy place and the holy of holies. And when we look at that, what we're looking at on the outer court is this kind of like justification. And the second phase, we've got sanctification. And then the third phase, some people have called it like glorification, just because they like a lot of vacations. I'd like a vacation personally, but you know, that's how they roll. That's how they roll. So there's this kind of, still this kind of journey in these in these courts bring us close and bring us to this point where no longer is the the eventually the idea is that the angels aren't this separating force between us and him but that we can be one they're no longer these mediators between us to a degree but that jesus comes he's the sacrifice for all sins and that we can draw near boldly to the throne of grace which is something we couldn't do before we see boldly the throne of grace the grace grace means god's ability to empower and to change so sometimes people talk about grace and mercy in a weird kind of way um, and what grace is, is ultimately it's God's power to change us and to transform us that he can get his glory. So through this process, you, you really have that. You have justification, you have the judgment, you have sanctification, this process, and then the glorification. God gets his glory as we draw near to him. Like if we're far from him, he doesn't really get much glory in that. So it's kind of this process kind of bringing us in. Now, where I want us to kind of end today 
on this note is ultimately the most important part. So you had this whole tabernacle experience and it was, a, it, was, it was like Ron Burgundy. It was kind of a big deal. But in John's gospel, so he relays in his wordplay, in his bars, in his writing, to the Genesis narrative. But he's also playing a lot on the Exodus narrative. So in 1 John, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. So he's, he's related to Eden. He's related to the creation story. He's related Jesus to the word that God spoke, that created all things, that sustains all things, that in him all things were made. He talks about being the light of men, which ties back to last week's talk that we did about the golden lampstand and what that was symbolic of. Also, that ties back to Eden as well. So John in his imagery is he's making some really huge claims. So for the Hebrew people hearing this, they would have straight away brought up um, images of Eden, of creation. Then on the second layer, it would have brought up this idea of, of the Exodus narrative. And then it goes on down into, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were not born of, the, of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the Son, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, when the early readers of this passage would have heard this line in verse 14, what they would have read in one sense would have been totally different to how we hear this today. So this isn't how they would have read it, but the message, the message they would have received from it would have sounded like I'm going to read to you now. It would have sounded to them as they read these words. Because of the image in the wordplay, knowing the Jewish history, knowing the Hebrew tradition, the way they would have heard this would have been like this. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the idea straight at the beginning was that God had set a people free and said, I'm going to live among you. You're going to be my people. And when John writes this, this gets translated into a Greek, this gets written in, like, um, in a Greek language. And at this particular time, even their Old Testament, they had the Septuagint, was written in a Greek language. And the word that he uses for dwelt here is the same kind of word you would have for the first part, part of tent of meeting. So when we talk about Jesus here, the wordplay and the imagery and the connection would have been to the tabernacle for anyone who was reading um, a Greek version of the Old Testament, which many of them did do. So at this point, what we have is John makes this bold claim and statement 
that Jesus is the tabernacle, that he is the God that lives among us, and that that was just a shadow of who he is, just as all the imagery he uses relates straight back to the very beginning of creation, that through Jesus all things are made. And then you have, with the Genesis story, there comes everything being good, and then there comes a situation of everything being knocked out of equilibrium, and then there comes this exodus from the slavery, because in amongst this evil that has entered the world comes this whole new set of selfishness and problems and then God's glory finally gets revealed the tabernacle is this pointer of what God is going to do among his people and then John is saying well actually it's not really about that tent the tabernacle is here and it's Jesus and he's flesh and blood and he's living among us and he's with us and he's for us and that as many as believed in him they become children of God that it's through Jesus we become children of God that's through believing in him. That some didn't receive him, some did. But those who did, they received him. And they were not born, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Which is where we get the, where the, the Pentecostal churches hijacked this and called it born again. Jesus talked about you must be born from on high. And so when he says this here, when he says born from on high, he means born of God, a new birth. And what it says here is the exact same thing. Is that Jesus comes, that we come and we meet with him, we live with him, and we experience a new birth. Just like they experienced deliverance from Egypt. And Jesus did the communion meal, which we had when we talked about the table of bread a few weeks back, where he broke the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you at Passover. This is my blood poured out for you and for many. That it all centers around him wanting to live among us, but not just wanting to live among us, but he called out his ecclesia, his church, people that would be called out for a purpose, his purpose, to see the transformation and the restoration of all things. The, the belief we have as Christians is that one day, he is going to restore things to how they're supposed to be, that things will be good, that there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more death. All these things will pass away. Behold, I make all things new, continuously new, it says in the Greek, that he's going to redeem all these things. And this all happens because he comes and he lives among us. But he wants to live among us, but he wants to live through us. And so what happens with the Holy of Holies is, it talks about this place where the Spirit of God is, where Jesus comes and he does what he does, but he ultimately wants to empower us through this through Holy Spirit to live lives that are changed, not for our own self-gratification like some of the people wanted to hijack it in the New Testament, but he calls us to do this not for our own benefit, but that God might finally get glory because God gets glory in his tabernacle, in who Jesus is. And so the glory goes to him and it's all about him, but he wants us to be partakers in what he does because he wants to bring about social change. But that only happens when we do Ecclesia. That only happens when we do church. And so when we came here to gather together today, we came here to gather together for God to get his glory. And he gets his glory not because we came here together today and I did a talk. He gets his glory because we surrender our lives before him. And we say, we make room this morning for you to be at the center. So I'm going to just invite him. I'm going to pray. But it's down to really how you engage with him in this time. Father God, I come before you myself this morning and I, I want to create space for you in my life. I want to create new space for you in my life. I want to create new space for me to hear you. I want to create new space in my life for me to live for you. I want to create new space in my life to follow the symbolism of what tabernacle meant, but ultimately that Jesus came and walked among us and lived among us. And in him, all things are made and have their being. And that he is reconciling all things to himself. I wish to be reconciled to him. I wish to live a life that centers with you at the glory where you get the glory from my life, where you bring about social innovation and change within this world because I live differently, because I, my, my, my words will be different, my actions will be different, my motives will be different, my spending will be different. Um, the way that I prioritize people will be different because you will come and you will get that glory. Father, may we be aware of your holiness today. 
maybe be aware of the holiness issue that the tabernacle reminds us of, but also that ultimately in the tabernacle that is Jesus, the true one, who brings real restoration, we may enter and we may boldly approach the throne of grace or the mercy seat, as it's called, on the Ark of the Covenant inside the tabernacle in the holiest place. We come boldly to that place, a place where no one could go and now all can. Meet with us, give us your mercy and your grace this week to live different. In Jesus' name, amen.